All righty. Good morning, everybody. So today's sermon, we are tackling the task of a healthy church loves God and loves others. And I'm going to reason with us that this sermon will be more complex probably than what meets the eye when we normally think of loving God and loving others. I say this because I had a conversation with a family member of mine about a month ago. We go to different churches and we have different worship styles. And we both agreed that the call on a Christian's life is to love God and love others. However, as we began talking, I began to realize that we have different definitions of who God is and what love is. And so therefore, we truly didn't believe in the same God. You see, this is important for us to realize because when John says these words in 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What John is not saying is that every single person that we encounter that claims to be a Christian or claims that Jesus did come to earth and live as a human being is a true believer. You see, what John is doing here is he is attacking the number one heresy at the time, which is docetism, which proclaimed that Jesus was simply a spiritual being, that he didn't come in the flesh. And so the implication for believers when reading a text like this is not to just take everyone's word for it when they say that they're a Christian, but for them to make sure that this person believes in the same God as we do. And so when we are tasked with and are charged by Jesus himself in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 39, to you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We must define who God is and what biblical love is before we truly can proceed. So today's sermon is two parts. First, love God. Second, love others. So we'll be answering the question, why? In other words, who is God? You see, doctrine is so very important for Christians to learn and understand. Not as a means in and of themselves, but as a means in seeing God more beautifully. You see, it's like if we had a window that was all foggy and dirty. For instance, my windshield yesterday while driving with Mark and Vinny. It was, there was bug guts all over it. I could barely see it was foggy. I'm like, man, I should probably clean this. You see, that's how our view of God is initially when we first come to faith in Christ. Doctrine's job is to clean the windshield for us, not so that we're focused on the windshield and say, man, what a clean windshield, but so that we're focused on the view ahead, the view being God himself. And so the more doctrinally sound we are as a church, the more clearly we can see God, which thus in turn causes us to adore him more. And so our job as, as pastors, and every time we're preaching, one of our goals is to preach doctrinally sound sermons week after week so that we leave here with a greater appreciation of who God is and what he has done. 
So therefore, I'm going to talk about four attributes or characteristics of God. And this is not an exhaustive list in any way, shape, or form, but four characteristics of, of who God is that are, I think, vitally important for us to be on board with. First off, in Genesis 1, verse 1, literally the first verse in this holy scripture, we are, we are told, in the beginning, God. And so what we are told here is that God is the great uncaused cause. Before the world began, God. Before the beginning of time, God. See, I'm sure every single one of us has asked ourselves, well, if God created us, who created God? Right? I'm sure we've all been there at some point in time in our life. That's a reasonable question. However, God is outside of the realm in, in, the, in the matter of which we think of things. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. God created us. God has always been. There is no creator of God. He literally has always been in existence because this is his world and we're living in it. Secondly, God is holy. When you see in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 3 through 4, the prophet Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. And he sees these seraphim above him. And it says, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Man, what an amazing depiction of our great God. These seraphim are flying around God and on his throne, and the only words that they can mutter are holy, holy, holy. You see, God is so set apart, so transcendent, so mind-numbingly better and greater than us, than we can even imagine. And so the only word possible for them to use, which doesn't even give him enough credit, is holy. And it's repeated three times, signifying holy, holier, holiest. There is no being like God. Keep in mind, what, what the seraphim are not saying is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Because God, although he is love and although he is mercy, God's all-encompassing attribute that makes him who he is, is his holiness. Because within his holiness, he is 100% love and 100% wrath. He's 100% merciful and 100% just. Holiness literally is the embodiment of who God is. Thirdly, God is sovereign. You see, within God's holiness, he has this amazing attribute of this divine and sovereignty. We see in Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist writes, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is the only being on heaven and earth that can do whatever he please, pleases. Remember, this is God's world. He created it. He's holy. He's transcendent. And we're living in it. God is holy. God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. And in Isaiah 45, 7, he, he covers all the bases in saying, The one forming light and creating darkness 
causing well-being and creating calamity. Literally every single thing that we can imagine or think of, God says, I am the one who does all of these. God, completely and totally sovereign and in control. Right? We're told in Matthew that there's not even a sparrow, not even a bird that falls to the ground apart from the Lord's doing. That means in, in the most remotest parts of the earth, any bird that falls to the ground in death, any insect that dies, whatever it is, God is ultimately the one that has caused that to happen. And in Proverbs, we're reminded that the lot is cast, but every decision belongs to the Lord. It's like us throwing dice, playing a game of Yahtzee, and boom, you just got a full house. Thank God for that, because every decision belongs to the Lord. God is in complete and total control. That means from the beginning of time till now, June 20th, 2021, we are in plan A. There has never been anything that has happened outside of his divine will and ordination. This right now is God's plan. He is in control. And lastly, the attribute that we'll look at because it is so pertinent to today's sermon, God is love. He really is the embodiment of love. We see in 1 John 4, 8, where the apostle writes, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Therefore, then, we can only truly love if God is in us, which he only dwells within his children. So then, we cannot love and all of these practical applications that I am about to share cannot happen unless he first lives within us. Ultimately, like Pastor Mark said last week, any real obedience, and in this case, any true biblical love that proceeds from us, can only happen by and through the Holy Spirit. So then, only true Christians can love God and love others. This means that the world Despite their, despite their appearance of love in soup kitchens and hospitals and different charities, they cannot truly love because God is not within them. Now, we will answer the question, what is love? We've defined now who for us, who is this God, that, which again was not an exhaustive list in any way, shape, or form. But this is the God in whom we are charged with loving. Now we've got to tackle, how can we love God? What is love? First, let me illustrate something for us. Let's, let's say that we have this married couple, Jim and Jennifer. And Jennifer goes to her husband. And she says, hey, Jim, I just want to tell you how I really feel loved when you buy me roses. When you buy me roses, oh, I feel like the biggest princess in the world. I just, I just feel how much you love me. And not only when you buy me roses, but when you take me out to the movies, oh, there is nothing that expresses your love for me more than when you buy me roses and take me to the movies. And Jim now, knowing this, the next day, he's like, Jennifer, guess what? I love you so much that I'm going to take you golfing with me today. <laughs> and after, after I take you golfing with me, we're going to watch the Bucks game tonight. <laughs> yeah, I know, crazy. I love you so much. And she's like, no, Jim, I just told you how I wanted to be loved. And he responds to her, Jennifer, normally I go out golfing with the boys, and I watch the game with the boys. I'm doing this with you because I love you, baby. 
No. Right? We logically can tell that Jim is not expressing love to his wife. It was just communicated from Jennifer to Jim how she wants to be loved. You see, God, this infinite, amazing, holy, and sovereign being, has told us how he wants to be loved in his word. And when we try and say that we love God and express our love for God in any manner outside of the word of God, we are like foolish Jim who just wants to do what we want to do and then tag God's name on it and say, no, I'm doing this for you, God. I'm doing this out of my expression of love for you when in reality it's self-centered, vain, and futile. So we got to first then recognize that our predisposition tells us that we don't know how to love, that we can't love. You see, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul hits us with these tremendously hard verses to digest. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That is the reality for every single person on, on, on earth unless they are in Christ. And so we then cannot love God because we can't even comprehend who God is or what love is. And therefore, knowing this, knowing this reality, it should make us all the more diligent to search the scriptures and plead with God to lead us by his spirit so that we can worship God in an appropriate manner. So that our expression of love comes from scripture itself. The very tool in which God has given us to show us how to love. And what scripture does is it shows us how God loved you see, the greatest expression of love was sacrificial. Something that we remembered and took part in this morning was communion. The remembering of Jesus' sacrifice for us. That he laid down his life so that we could be in relationship with him. You see, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in John 15, 13, Jesus himself says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest expression of love was Jesus' sacrifice for us so that we could be reunited with him. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. And yet he did it anyways because he is love. You see, therefore, following in pattern, following in stride with God, as we are commissioned in 1 John to, ought, to walk as he walked, to walk as Christ walked, we should love as Christ loved. Therefore, how are we to love? Sacrificially. You see, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus commissions the people. and says he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the charge given to everyone. You want to follow me? You want to believe in me? You want to love me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. You see, it's a life of sacrifice. 
It's a life of giving up ourselves, our interests, our desires to pursue His glory and His gospel. This means missing leisure time. This means missing out on, on, on just fun times and exciting times with friends. This means making church a priority. If that means rescheduling work or whatever it is, being here with the fellowship of the brethren. And that means ultimately giving up a life of sin and selfish pleasure to pursue God and the things of God. Jesus does not promise that this life is going to be easy. He doesn't say, follow me, it's going to be sunshine and rainbows. He says, follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself. It's going to be tough, but this is how your love for me is expressed. Which means then we come under his lordship. Which means Jesus becomes our master. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Why did Christ die? So that we would live for him. He gave up his life so that we would give up our life for him. And in Romans 12:1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, Paul doubles down, and he says, our expression, the greatest expression of worship that we can have unto God is not in the singing of songs, it's not in the gathering of people, it's in the laying down of our lives for him. This is worship, and this is love. And therefore, then concluding, obedience in our lives is the proof of our love for God. Remember last week, Mark preached on John 14, 15, 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for Christ is expressed in our keeping of his commandments. Obedience, then, is our proof of love for God and ultimately proof that our spirit that his spirit is in us because we cannot obey apart from his spirit. Thus, we cannot love God or neighbor unless we have been made new. Therefore, we love God because of who he is. This holy, sovereign, uncaused cause who is the embodiment of love and mercy, compassion and just. We love God for who he is. And we love God in the manner in which he loved us. First and foremost, sacrificially. Secondly, Jesus commissions us to love others. How are we to love others? The Apostle John tells us again in 1 John 5, 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. You see what just happened there? This is how we know we love God. The children of God. This is how we know we love others. By loving God and keeping his commandments. This is like the circular argument that scripture gives. If you love God, you will love others. And if you love others, that will be expressed in your love for God, which is expressed in your keeping of his commandments. You see, we cannot separate any one of these elements to this love. 
Our love for God is expressed in our love for others, which is expressed in our love for God, which is expressed in our love and keeping of his commandments. Therefore, again, obedience unto God proves, really shows our love for him. Now, I will argue that the most loving thing that anyone can do for an unregenerated soul, when we are charged with loving others, first and foremost, obviously we're going we're gonna to talk about loving the brethren, which we'll hit in a little bit, but what about those unbelievers? What about the unbelievers in our life, the family members that we have that are atheists, or that are a part of different churches that we don't believe preach the true gospel? Or those family members or those friends in our life that just outright reject God and want nothing to do with them. You see, the most loving thing that we can do for them is share with them the good news of Jesus. You see, just as God loved us and sent Jesus to us, as expressed in John 3.16, he has sent us and commissioned us as his children to go out into the world and both show them the love of God and tell them about the love of God, the true God. So we love others by obeying God's exhortation to us to spread the good news. Remember, this must be doctrinal. This must be be doctrinal. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound a little weird at first, but stick with me. What unbelievers do not need to hear is that Jesus loves them and that he's died for them and all these things. But if you ask somebody their mode of evangelism, they'd say, hey man, Jesus loves you. You see it all the time. If you were to look up any evangelistic video on YouTube, for the most part, that's their style. Hey man, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. Number one, Jesus does love them, but number two, that is not the means of evangelism that we're shown in Scripture. Fact check me on this. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, then when they come onto the scene, their message of evangelism is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, what unregenerated souls need to hear need to hear is that they have sinned against the holy God and thus they are on their way to eternal damnation but God in his love his grace and his mercy has made a way for them to be saved if they repent of their sin believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the proof of this belief is in their obedience to him that's what unbelievers need to hear and you see, we are afraid of telling unbelievers this because we think that it might hurt their feelings or that it might be offensive. But let's, for sake of illustration, basically if we are regenerated and we're talking to somebody who's unregenerated, we had cancer at one point in time, but we found the cure to cancer. And now we are cured. We no longer have cancer. That person still has cancer. And out of fear of offending them by talking about their cancer, we just avoid the topic altogether. I'm just going to love them by not even speaking of their cancer. By not even speaking, then, of their sin. And thus, we don't give them the cure to their cancer so that they can find healing, so that they can find peace. You see, when we share the good news, it's like we're giving them the cure to cancer. This is, this is what you need. This is true healing. This is true peace, true joy. Jesus Christ, the gospel. You see, so 
when we do not share the gospel with whether they're friends that don't believe or family members that don't believe or the, the cashier at the grocery store or the waitress at the restaurants, we are actually doing a tremendously unloving act to them when Jesus charges us to love others. Now, moving on to the love of the brethren. We see in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, a quite long list of love. I'll read it for us, then we'll tackle a few specifics. He says, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, love is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If you want to go to a passage that shows you in an applicable way and how to love, there's one for you right there. In, in, in so many different ways, love is expressed to us. However, for sake of time, we're going to tackle three specifics, three ways that we are told to love our brother in Christ and to love the church. Three ways in which Jesus did and scripture exhorts us to as well. First off, forgiveness. You see in Proverbs 10, 12, it reads, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. We, as children of God, are commissioned to forgive everyone. Jesus has forgiven us much, therefore we are also to forgive much. Peter's question to Jesus is, Lord, how many times? Seven? To which Jesus responds, seven times seventy. We must forgive. We must be a people of forgiveness. I would guarantee you, that there are people in this congregation, if not everybody, including myself, people who if we truly dwelt on this, if we truly thought about it, there are people in our lives whom we have not forgiven. There are people in our lives whom we are at ends with, whom we are at odds with, that we just can't stand. Now when this person, that the thought of them pops into our mind, resentment. And we might think to ourselves that they have wronged us, doesn't matter. Proof of our love for Christ is in how we forgive others. Jesus has forgiven us much. In fact, so much so that scripture exhorts us, church, to not let the sun go down without making peace with the brethren. Do not leave, do not go to bed tonight without forgiving that person in your life, whether it's somebody in the church or whether it's a family member or a friend that you haven't spoken to in 20 years or whether it is somebody, a father or a mother who you despised and they're now no longer with us. Make forgiveness with them. Again, you might think to yourself, man, they really wronged me. They really did me dirty. Here's the reality. We deserve hell. We deserve hell. 
Every single one of us in this congregation, every single one of us that has ever breathed a breath on earth deserves to be in hell. Therefore, no matter how wrong anybody has wronged us, we ultimately deserve far worse. Therefore, the fact that Christ could forgive us when we have wronged him and sinned against him in ways that we can't even think of, you, you realize that every single thing in our life, even as born-again followers of Christ now, is tainted with sin? Like if sin was the color blue, every single thing that we did in this life would have some sort of pigment of blue attached to it. We sin against God so often that we can't even comprehend how much we sin against him. And yet he tells his children, I have thrown your sins from as far as from the east as to the west. I have forgotten them. They are no longer there. I have forgiven you of these sins. And we think that it is okay as a Christian to not forgive someone because of how badly they've wronged us. See the irony? As a church who wants to be healthy, as a church that is growing in maturation, growing in intimacy with Christ, one of those things, one of those expressions that we must have is forgiveness of everyone. Make amends with those in whom we love. Secondly, bearing burdens. Galatians 6.2 tells us, bear one another's burdens and there, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You see, just as Mark said last week, healthy churches suffer much as suffering is a mark of true faith. That means that this church, as we grow and mature in our faith and in our love towards God and others, there will more than likely be a great deal of suffering. It's the reality. There may be a great deal of suffering and trials coming our way. And I say our because we are one body for his glory, called to be there for each other, called to weep with those who weep when experiencing loss or any other pain and trial. When one person of this body is hurting, we all hurt. We run to them. We weep with those who weep. We bear each other's burdens. And that church probably will be a reality for us. If not now, then soon, and then for the rest of our time together. Bearing burdens is charged to the Christian as an expression of our love for each other. There will be people who are hurting, who experience loss of a loved one, who experience random financial ruin, who experience severe sickness, and we as a church body are charged to be there for them to cook them meals, to provide and help in any way that we can, to love on them, to give them a shoulder to cry on, to just simply listen to them. If one person is hurting in this body, we all must be hurting. We are called and commissioned to bear the burdens of the body. Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. The church body can find rest comfort and love of the church body and those who make it up as the very hands and feet of Christ himself. People will be hurting. People maybe are hurting right now. We are charged to bear with them. Thirdly, sacrificially. 
Again, going back to John 15, 13. First, we looked at it as a means in how we are to love God. Now we will look at this verse in a, as a means in how we are to love our neighbor, to love our brother in Christ. You see, as John 15, 13 says again, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Just as Christ laid down his life, we are to lay down ours for the brethren. That means time, effort, money, energy, etc. Cooking meals, driving people places, cleaning, babysitting, not just when it is convenient for us, but also when it costs you something. Serving and cleaning the church, being there, even though Saturdays are usually booked up, making time. Not because you just have a plethora of time, but because you love God and love his church. You're sacrificially making time to give and to serve and to love. You see, do you think that it was convenient for Jesus to die? Kevin did a great job talking about it this morning. That, that he didn't just die this easy, painless death. He didn't just say, okay, stick the needle in me and I'll die in, in 10 seconds. Count down from 10. 10, 9, 8, boom, dead. That's not how Jesus died. He was, he was beaten. He was scorned. He was mocked. He was whipped. He had the crown of thorns on his head. He was ultimately crucified. Where every breath that it took was probably more painful than the lashings he just endured. Do you think that it was convenient for Jesus to die in this manner? Scripture actually gives us the answer. Jesus cries out in the garden, Lord, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. It was not convenience. Yet out of his love for us, Jesus bore this pain. He bore this suffering for us so that we again could be in relationship with him. Think of that sacrifice. Now think of ways that we can sacrificially love each other. Now all of a sudden, the fact that we had plans once on a Saturday and having to sacrificially give that up doesn't seem so bad. It doesn't seem so unrealistic. Making time to come to church in the morning by giving up something, whatever it is, shouldn't be that hard. Cooking an extra meal for a, for a family who just gave birth to a child should be easy. should be something that we long for. Being there to clean somebody's house who's just they're, just, they're just a mess. They're going through hard times. They've been in the hospital. Whatever it is, should be easy. Yes, it's going to cost us something. But that's what love is. It's sacrificial. So much so that if we're not loving sacrificially, if, we're, if our love that we're continually expressing isn't costing us something, Maybe it isn't true love after all. You see, giving and loving and serving sacrificially is the manner in which Scripture tells us to love. It is love in and of itself. Now finally, church, these are not just suggestions for us. These are not just things for us to leave and ponder and be like, yeah, maybe I'll consider that. That's not what Scripture says. You see, ultimately, these are realities for every born-again follower of Christ, meaning that if we are in Christ, if God is in us, if His Spirit indwells us, 
he will cause obedience in this manner. So therefore, for us practically, they're exhortations. You see, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the apostle writes, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's saying if you claim to be a Christian, and yet your brother in Christ is hurting, and you're nowhere to be found, you're off doing your own thing, serving yourself, how could God be in you? And again, in John, 1 John 4, 8, the first part of the verse says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So church, if we're not loving in these manners, if we're not forgiving, if we're not bearing burdens, if we're not giving and serving and loving sacrificially, the question to us is, is God really in you? You see, if we desire to be a healthy church, which I know that we do, if we want to grow in intimacy with Christ and intimacy with the brethren that ultimately is a means to intimacy with Christ and the glory of God, then we will and we must love in these ways. Let us then therefore be a church marked by real, godly, biblical love, first and foremost unto him, which is then expressed in our love for others, which is ultimately expressed in our obeying of his commandments, loving the way scripture exhorts us to love, in loving God and in loving others. Father God, thank you so much. Lord, for who you are. Lord, thank you so much for being the great uncaused cause that before the world began, you were. Lord, thank you for being sovereign and holy and all these other attributes, mercy and just and love and, and kindness and compassionate. Lord, all these things that we can't even think of, of how exhaustive, Lord, you are. Lord, we praise you for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would work within us, cause obedience in our lives to love you, Lord, the way you have expressed that you want to be loved, and Lord, to love your children in the manner in which you have expressed that you want your children to be loved. Lord, I pray that as this church goes forth, that we are marked by real, biblical, and godly love for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Christian. Um, just before.